Psalms. We continue, or we are beginning to wrap up our summer series in the Psalm. I'm very thankful for Camper having taken the lead in that, and he's done such a good job, and then allowed a few of us to share with him in, in that series. And Camper will wrap that series up next week uh, with a final uh, Psalm, and then I have the opportunity this morning to preach Psalm 73, which if I was given one Psalm uh, that I would most want to talk about, it would be this one. This was... Uh, with at least, if, if you're allowed to have a, a favorite, since all Scripture is God's Word, uh, I would say this would be my favorite, particularly because it is so real and so raw and so pertinent to my life and to the life of all people. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll begin a new series, uh, looking through the fall in the, uh, the, uh, the Lord's letters to His churches, from Revelations two and through, uh, Revelation 2 and 3. But this morning we have the opportunity to hear from God uh, from in Psalm 73. Before we look to this and study, let's go to the Lord because we are dependent upon Him to grant us His grace so that we may hear His voice and benefit from what it is that He has spoken to us. Father, we do come to You leaning on the promise that You have made that Your Word will never come back empty. You have not left us to speculate about what You are like wonder about why the world is as it is, or hope in vain that something may be done about the brokenness that we see all around us and even within us. For Lord, you have reminded us that you created the world and you created it good, and yet we messed it up. And we continue to live in the brokenness of that mess, and yet at the same time, through your grace, you have invited us to a relationship with you in which we find healing and forgiveness and hope. And you have promised us that you are at work and you are going to restore the whole world to being what it is to be. And we even see evidences of that around us and even in our own lives. And so, Lord, as we know that you have revealed your word to us and we come to this portion of your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to see the world and to see ourselves the way that you would have us to see things so that we may have the joy that you've promised living not with a vain hope, but a true and living hope, which is ultimately fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus Christ and through his work that was finished already on the cross and in his resurrection. Lord, in Christ we pray, for he is the true word, the living word incarnated before us. We pray all things this hour. Amen. Psalm 73. Hear the word of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. 
For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. I would suspect that very few of you, and perhaps not even those who are the most astute historical, will recognize the name Princess Caribou. I wouldn't have recognized it either other than I stumbled upon the name and her story in a, in a Time Magazine article that I recently read. And here's what Time Magazine, an excerpt of what they said in terms to introduce her story. In 1817, a mysterious, attractive woman surfaced in a small village near Bristol, England. She wore a dark turban and spoke a language that was unintelligible and baffled locals. Though she was at first assumed to be a foreign peasant, the woman, with the help of a Portuguese sailor, managed to communicate to her host that she was, in fact, a princess from an island called Javasu. Princess Caribou, as she became known, shared her engrossing saga about having been abducted by pirates whom she escaped by jumping overboard and swimming to shore through the stormy English Channel. And Princess Caribou quickly vaulted to fame. It all seemed almost too good to be true, because it was. After reading her story in a local newspaper, a woman outed Caribou, noting that the phony princess whom the woman had employed as a servant had entertained children in the past by speaking in invented tongues. Princess Caribou, it turned out, came from a no more exotic locale than Devonshire, England, where she was born with the name Mary Baker, the daughter of a cobbler. <clears throat> but Time Magazine goes on and says, thanks to the sheer audacity and of her, and her ability to pull off this, uh, this scam, they named her as part of the top ten imposters of all time. Apparently, there was a movie that was made about her that starred actress Phoebe Cates. As I read that, I began thinking about what if I was one of the people that had encountered her? How would I feel when I was drawn into her story, sympathetic about her plight, all the sacrifices that she had made, having a princess, having to escape from captivity? And, and just thinking how perhaps I might have, my heart would have gone out to her and wanted to help her. And then how I might have felt when I realized it was all a lie. She was presenting herself as something that wasn't at all true. She was putting herself, uh, uh, putting, painting a picture of herself 
presenting a face for others to respond to that had absolutely no basis in reality. I imagine if that situation like that had happened, I would feel utterly betrayed. And even though I probably would have not really lost anything because, you know, a story like that, even many stories like that that happen, very rarely do I lose anything. It just instinctively we know that it's just not the way things are supposed to be. It erodes a sense of trust. We begin to look more closely at everything that we're presented, everybody who comes to us, to find out what's their real story. And because instinctively we know it's not right, I think instinctively we respond. There's an intrigue with these stories. We like to hear them. They're interesting. But when we are faced with somebody who presents themselves in, in such a way, we are angry. We reject them. We dislike them. We disapprove of what they're presenting. And yet I find that very pertinent because I have to ask myself, and I often wonder, how many of us are inclined to pass ourselves off as something other than what we really are? In other words, I wonder how many, whether Christians or non-Christians, feel the pressure to act in a certain way, particularly when they are engaged with Christians in a Christian community, whether it's in the church or just outside the church, whether we feel compelled to act as if we have it all together. We have the right perspective. We have the right answers. And we live in perpetual joy in a state of stupor happiness. I think more than we want to admit. I think in the church, there is, an ex there is a pressure that we have all felt to present ourselves as if everything is good. Otherwise, we are worried that, one, perhaps our witness would be a poor witness to people who are looking for answers in, in a broken world. For me, it's more than that. While that sometimes may be the case, it's more, what will you think of me? if I present myself in a way that is not meeting up to the, the common standard. I think it's true when it's been said is that, unfortunately, the church is the last place that anybody really wants to be honest. Unbelievers who are looking for answers, coming and seeing people who are presenting themselves as they have their acts together, and maybe you can be good like us, are believers who have bought that same lie. I look at Psalm 73 and I realize that there is an important message in Psalm 73 that confronts that very real plague of the Christian church and shows us what it is that God values, what it is that God respects, what it is that God wants from us. And in a simple word, I would say what Psalm 73 tells us is what God wants is authenticity. That's the place that we begin. That's the face that we are to show, and that's what we learn from this psalm. We're going to work our way through, and we begin very simply in this way. The psalmist begins by, by simply saying, with a, with a, gives a theological statement. He says, truly the Lord is good. Truly the Lord is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's a theological statement. He's talking about who God is. It's a statement that we would expect the psalmist, particularly this psalmist, Asaph, to say when he is writing a song. 
that is to be used in worship. You may or may not know a lot about Asaph. Asaph was a priest and a worship leader in the temple in Jerusalem during the time of David and of, of Solomon. He was a faithful and a godly man. He was not only uh, tasked with that responsibility, but he was gifted for his job, not just competent in his job. He was a songwriter. He was not just a one-hit wonder with Psalm 73, not a one-hit wonder like we might see on VH1, you know, the songs you used to listen to and think, this group is the new Beatles or this is the, the new Elvis or whoever. And then now, 30 years later, you see them pop up and say, oh, yeah, I haven't thought about them in 20, 25 years because I only had uh, the one hit. Asaph, on the other hand, has written there's 12 of his songs that are contained in the Hebrew hymnal here in the Psalter. 12 songs that he wrote that, uh, that he led God's people to worship, including Psalm 73. So when you think about that and think about who he was, he's a priest, he leads people in worship, he's up front, he's calling people into God's presence. What would you expect him to say when he is writing a song that is to be used in worship. You expect him to say, truly the Lord is good. I mean, what would you think of our call to worship as Ben came up and said, the Lord is good, but who cares? Come, let's worship. It's not really very inspiring. We would expect somebody like Asaph to say, truly, surely the Lord is good. And that's how he begins his psalm. And he says it for another reason. The fundamental reason is because it's true and he knows it's true. Asaph was aware of the fact that God had called Israel, his people, people from nothing, for no reason other than God chose to call them and then he provided for them. He protected them. He was with them. He's promised to deliver them and he's done it time and again. And so Asaph being aware of what God has done and what God has promised, he knows God is good. And that's where he begins with the very fundamental truth that God is good. Then he says something that is relatively astounding. And we, it's easy for us to skip over it and move on to the bottom. Perhaps we are confused when we look at that. But in verse 1, when he says God is good, but in verse 2 he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. Because in reality, what he's saying is, look, I know God is good, but I don't care. Right now, I don't care. It's an amazing thing to hear him say that. And he says he didn't care because he's looking at the world around him and he is seeing that it just doesn't make sense. And he is frustrated. He is angry. Even in his own description of his own heart, he's saying, I am embittered. And he's saying in this song to God, God, I know you're good, but I don't care right now. I, 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 just, I just don't care. I don't give a hoot. Here's what he says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, in the next few verses, verses 4 through 12, he, he talks about the descriptions of, uh, of the wicked, and we won't go into great detail about that, but he's, he's describing the people who are around him, describing the things that seem to be carrying the day, and they are contrary to the way God's word calls his people to act, they're contrary to the values that Asaph has not only believed in, but committed himself to. And he's seeing those who are opposing and ignoring God's word. They seem to be doing just well. They're carrying the day. They're gaining popularity. They're gaining followers. Whereas he feels because of his faithfulness and standing 
confirm that he's not only being ignored and passed over, but he even gives hint to the fact that the people who are now in control of things, the people who are now popular, subtly threaten oppression for the people who don't join in uh, the way that they are choosing to live their life, their, their new definition of right and wrong. And Asaph says in, in verse 12, as a summary, he said, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. And then in verse 13, he gives an expression of his heart. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That whole summary, he is describing the reality of his own heart. He says, look, I know God's good, but right now, I don't care. In fact, I look at what's going on, I look what seems to be being blessed, and I look at my own life and the commitment that I've made to remain pure and to do what you want me to do, Lord, and it's got me nowhere, nothing. It's been all in vain. One commentator says that some of his frustration may have come in part because of the work that he did, that as a priest in the temple, he would have, uh, in Jerusalem, he would have had, uh, his part of his ministry would have been to, the, to David, to uh, David's uh, advisors, to the government officials, and he saw the tremendous corruption that was taking place within the government. If he was uh, ministering at that time, he may have been frustrated about the insubordination of Absalom, David's son, trying to remove his father from the throne, usurp the, the rightful place that his brother was going to have. Disappointed in the leaders, those who were supposed to be spiritual, they may have mal-spirituality, but they acted in another way. We see a man who is very frustrated as he sees the world around him going in a direction contrary to the way he thinks it should go, the way God says it will go ultimately. And he's angry and he's frustrated and he vents that as he's writing this. My question, though, <clears throat> is this. Do you ever feel that way? Would you admit it if you feel that way? Do you allow yourself to feel that way? When you have those frustrations, not about the frustrations about things that you think that are wrong in the culture or in the church or in the lives of the people that are around you, and, and address that, do you ever feel angry at God and say, you know, I've, I've followed your ways for nothing? Perhaps you're a college girl or a guy and you've committed yourself to purity now as a commitment to Christ, knowing that's what God wants for you. And you see if you're a girl, this other girl who's sleeping around and she's gaining popularity. Or you're a guy who's committed yourself to being pure and you're coming under the, the barbed jokes of other guys wondering what's wrong with you. Perhaps you're a businessman that's committed yourself to integrity. And you see others that are in your field and they compromise, whether it's in their business dealings or in the quality of their production, and somehow they're getting the contracts, they're getting the business, they're prospering, and you're breaking even or maybe not. It doesn't really matter what field you're in or what you do. The question is, do you see people who do what you do, but they don't have your integrity, your commitment to integrity, and they seem to be doing just fine? And you're not doing as well as you would like to do. When you see that, do you get angry? Do you get angry with God? 
And if you would get angry with God, would you allow yourself to admit that, even to yourself, that I'm angry with God. God, I don't understand this. Would you admit that to others in the church? To even admit it to yourself. Or as soon as you start feeling that way that you realize, oh, I'm angry with God, you cut it off because you know that's wrong and so I'm not going to feel that way. That's just wrong, so I'm not going to do that. And so you stifle and you stuff it. It's an important question. Because Asaph here paints a picture for us that's very important. It reminds us of some very important things about our lives. One is a picture of something that is very common to all of us, if we are honest about it. Is he has a tremendous gap between what he believes and what he is feeling, and he's willing to acknowledge it. <clears throat> the phrase that several of us have tossed around and we use is, it's the difference between your confessional faith, that which you know theologically to be true, and your functional faith. That's how you feel about what it is that you know to be theologically true. And the problem for many of us is that particularly in evangelical and conservative evangelical churches is we get very uncomfortable when we realize there's a gap to the point that we deny to ourselves and then to the Lord and deny to everybody else that we have that gap at all. That just doesn't seem like it should be a possibility because I know what Jesus has done. We sing songs about what Jesus has done. We come and we're reminded of what Jesus has done. And so we kid ourselves, we deceive ourselves, and we never deal with the reality of that gap because we might think there's something wrong with us or somebody else might think there's something wrong with us. But Asaph is a beautiful picture of us, for us, that this is a common thing for people, that know one thing and feel another. And he lays it out, and the fact that the Lord records this for us shows us how the Lord responds. He doesn't reject Asaph. He's not angry with Asaph in a situation. In fact, I would say that by the fact that the Lord takes this song and includes it in his Psalter for all other generations to read, he is saying, that's what I like. I want somebody who's real. Now I can deal with you. Him I can deal with. And he's laying it out. Because nowhere do we get a hint. In a lot of Psalms where there's, you see the Lord interjecting and, and they see that the Lord is speaking to them, correcting their perspective, that's not happening here. This psalm is a reminder to us that it's God looks at the heart, not at the behavior or the intentions. We somehow moved the mark of Christianity to be in the fruit rather than the root. <clears throat> so we mark the fruit, which should be obedience and faithful behavior. That's a fruit responding to love that has been given to us because we were broken and God loved us anyway. We were impoverished and God provided for us. And when we realize that love and God has laid out, even his law is a grace to say, if you live this way, things are going to be better for you. And we obey out of love for him, knowing also of his wisdom. But the root is understanding the nature of God. And surely God is good. And everything he does is good. And focusing on that and responding. We have moved the target to say, Christianity is marked by doing the right things, not doing the wrong things, by being in church, being in Sunday school, having my quiet time, never voting for the wrong political party. And that becomes the mark of Christianity. And we wonder why we're impotent in the world because we've taken 
the truth of the gospel as the foundational thing because we've moved. Not that the things are wrong, but that's not the essence of Christianity. Asaph is a beautiful picture to us that deal with being real. A guy who has real theology and sees broken, a real broken world and is angry and frustrated and upset, embittered, as he says about himself here, and he lays that out before God, and God is pleased with it, and God, we're being reminded, God's concerned about the heart, and when he gets a real heart, then he can begin to deal with us. It's a reminder to us that honesty, <clears throat> authenticity is essential to spiritual growth because no change takes place in us unless we're honest about ourselves, unless we're willing to measure the gap between what God has said about himself and what's true and what we feel. Simply passing the theological examination is not what God is concerned about. Simply committing yourself to being good and doing what's right is not what God is primarily concerned about because we can learn to change our behaviors and still have no love for God because we have very little understanding of what he has done for us. Asaph is a beautiful picture of one who is honest before God. And he's trying to reconcile that for himself. He's trying to reconcile himself to the reality of God and what God has promised. And so the primary question I would ask you this morning is, do you ever feel like Asaph does? And would you admit it? yourself or to God or to anyone else. My hope is that we would be a place where that could be said, that when you are broken, when you're frustrated, when you're angry, you would not feel ashamed, embarrassed, or less when you say that, because we all experience it sometime or another, and that broken people would come here and feel comfortable in their brokenness, not that we're going to give them some pious advice so that they can paste on some beatific look, but they truly, in the brokenness, we would come and we would be reminded of what God has done for us because of his love for us, not because we have it together. When that happens, we will see power changing our lives, our church, our city, and the nations. And we see that taking place in Asaph's life here as well. Because while that's the reality, and Asaph here is going through a process, there is a tremendous change that takes place between verses 16 and 17. But before we get to that, we see Asaph is thinking a little bit. He's processing this. He's laid everything out. He's honest before God, and then he's wrestling with this. Verse 13 again, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands for innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. In other words, somebody's telling him that he's wrong for being faithful to the Lord. He's feeling pressure to conform to something other than godliness, and, and he's getting corrected and scolded for remaining faithful. But then he's also wrestling with a dilemma that he has because of his position. <laughs> he says, if I, if I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. In other words, this is how he's feeling. And he knows that he needs to be real. At the same time, he knows that what he's feeling is not the ultimate reality. And as the one who is leading the people in worship, the spiritual priest, if he was to get up in the pulpit or in leading the worship or in his council and to say to people, you know, the world just stinks. He would have betrayed people who are in need of hope in the God who is good and the God who has promised to restore all things to its original beauty. And so he's wrestling with, here's how I feel, here's what I know, but I don't want to be inauthentic when I teach. I want to teach what I know, what, what I really am, but if I, if I just go with what I feel and let that be the standard, you know, 
I would let everybody down. People would be deceived. And so we see a real turmoil going on with him, which means that he doesn't, authenticity is essential as a foundation, but we then need to deal with that in light of who God is and what God has done for us. And he's dealing with that. And so in verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed too wearisome. He's just tired. I don't know how to reconcile this. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Something happened in him. He was being real. He was being honest. And interesting, he didn't feel the need to get his attitude straight before he entered and approached God, before he goes into the sanctuary. Now, granted, it's his job, so he doesn't have the same. He has kind of external compulsions. But when he entered into the presence of God, when he encountered God, his perspective changed significantly. The circumstances did not change, but his perspective changed significantly. C.S. Lewis once wrote this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And I believe this is pertinent. It's somewhat what Asaph was experiencing as we translate that. He's saying, look, I believe God is good. Truly the Lord is good. Not just because I see what God has done, and so therefore I see the, the radiance of his glory. But when I learn to look at the world the way that God looks at the world, I see everything in an entirely different way. I know, therefore, that God is true to what he has said because I'm all of a sudden able to see the world totally differently. In fact, he said this is the way the world is going to be. I shouldn't be surprised when corruption seems to reign because we live in a broken world. But I also see what God is doing. And so by the fact that he doesn't only see the evidences of God and just cling to evidences, he then learns to look at his circumstances and the world that he lives in through the lens of what God has said about the world and about what would happen in the future, and the promises that he has made, and it made all the difference in the world. He understood that God created the world good, and we messed it up. He understood God's promise to restore it, and he was clinging to that promise, and he understood, and we have the benefit of understanding God's goodness in a way that Asaph was looking forward to, because the ultimate expression of God's goodness and restoration is found on the cross of Jesus. I think we need to note this as Asaph went into the sanctuary where he met God and his perspective changed. It is an important reminder of the benefit and the priority of coming into the sanctuary for corporate worship. I felt the way Asaph has felt. I feel it fairly often. And there have been times when I come into corporate worship My attitude's not what it ought to be, but you'd probably notice if I didn't show up. So I don't have the luxury of getting my attitude straight before I show up. But something someone says, or something in the song, somehow reorients my thinking, and I'm able to see the Lord again. That becomes my focus, and and I'm reminded, and things begin to change within me. The fact that Asaph went to the sanctuary is similar to mine. That's where he goes because that's where he works. But I don't think sanctuary itself needs to be limited to a specific place. I'm not giving permission to say corporate worship's not important, but the issue is meeting God at a a place where you are alone with God and that you are able to clear your mind and see God more clearly. 
And for me, while it happens at times in the sanctuary in terms of corporate worship, I would say probably many more times when my life is seeming out of sorts, it's been when I've been on a mountain trail. Just saying, I just need to get out of here. It's a little harder for me than when I lived in East Tennessee, but that's to do that right now. But just getting away and walking and seeing the creation and the animals, they couldn't care less who's in office, what the policies are, realizing God created it good. It still is beautiful. It will, it's promised to get better. Whoever it is that's oppressing me or threatening me, however I'm failing, I'm realizing God has ordered this world. God is still in control of this world, and it is still beautiful. My perspective begins to change. It's been a while, but it also used to happen occasionally. I would just get away, and I would just take a basketball, and I'd go to some remote court where nobody ever went and, and just would just shoot baskets and just get things out of my mind and begin to think, of the Lord, and while I'm chasing down all the shots I miss, I have plenty of time to be thinking. And, um, and I say that to say for you is while there is a priority and there is a promise that when you come here for corporate worship and you seek God, God's promised to meet you here, that may be the reorientation, but it's not limited to coming to church only. Wherever you can get away and meet God and get the problems of the world or of your own mind to become secondary and the reality of who God is and what God has done is primary, and you are alone with God, that is a sanctuary. But the rea- what, what Asaph shows us is that is necessary. And when we experience that, when we experience God and encounter him, everything begins to change. And for Asaph, he says, that's what happened. I came into the sanctuary. And the first thing that he says is, and I remembered their fate. I'm not really sure how to interpret that entirely. I mean, I know what he's saying. That the evil will get what they deserve. And that seems to ease his conscience some. And so in one sense, I'm saying, well, there's an evidence that he's not completely sanctified yet because, you know what, we really don't want for people to get what they deserve because I don't want to get what I deserve. But I think more likely what he's also saying, and maybe as a mixture because this is true of my own heart as well, is to say, while I may have to learn forgiveness, what is good is when justice shows evidence that it is beginning to rain. When the world that seems upside down, we realize it will be turned right side up. And I think really that Asaph, and I'm projecting here, putting myself into his shoes, is saying, I think that's largely what he's saying, even if, as in my life, there is a hint of, well, at least go get them, Lord. That one day they'll get theirs. But things change significantly for him. And he begins to have joy. And we see the response that he gives and actually the experience that he has at the end of the psalm is the fulfillment of what he theologically says in the beginning of the psalm. And it's an experience that I assume anyone who is in Christ, or probably anyone, would love to be able to have the feeling that he has. Because listen to these words of what he says. First, it's interesting, is there, there's an aspect of repentance And then he, he moves on to just true delight. He's continuing in verse 18 to talk about the, the evil. Truly, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. In other words, he realizes what looks to be a safe road right now for those who are against God. He realizes, according to God's promise, it, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not a safe road. It, he's going to come to the beautiful road that has no bridge. 
and, and they're not aware of it. So it's not what it looks like. And he talks about God, how they'll be destroyed in a moment. Verse 20, he says, uh, in verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered and when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. There's an aspect of repentance. He's saying, look, I was honest before you, and I know what I felt was not right. Authenticity is essential, and we're called to that. But just because you feel something doesn't make it right. But we've got to be honest with ourselves about that. And he realizes what he was feeling. He was honest about it, but he also says, you know, I was just going on instinct. I was just, I was like an animal. Only go instinct. I did not cognitively consider who you are, what you have promised, and then relate to that, which is a gift that only you and I, as those created after the image of God that have no other animal, can do. They cannot reason. They cannot ration, use rationale, uh, rationalize. They go by instinct entirely. And yet what he's saying is, when I was mad, I went by instinct. I did not conform my mind to the reality of who you are. And so he's a confession there one that we also need to embrace. <clears throat> and in verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Does that sound vaguely familiar? So that's the same promise. It's the experience, the experiential side of the same promise Jesus has given to us. I will be with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you until the end of time. And there is no end of time. And he's saying, you know what, God, you have promised to be with me and to provide and to never forsake. That's been part of the covenant that was made with his people forever. And he's saying, you know what, even when I was that way, even when I was angry, even when I was acting on instinct, even when I was authentic but acting in an ungodly way, even when there was a gap between what I know to be true and what I'm feeling, you didn't leave me. You didn't forsake me. You and I have that same promise because Jesus, who has already paid the debt for us, has promised saying, look, there's nothing else, not a problem. So you see that your heart isn't pure and you're frustrated. Great, because it's that way whether you see it or not. But if you see it, we can deal with it. If you don't see it, we can't deal with it. So if you see that, but realizing your heart's a mess does not alienate you from Christ because he's already paid the debt of your messy heart. promise that he's experienced is that he will never be forsaken by God. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. I promise. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Now, it's not that he doesn't care about anything or anyone else. Just think back to when you first fell in love. You cared about other people, but there was one object of your affection. All the other people in your life, that's nice. But the one who you love, the object of your affection, if they love you back, that's your whole world. That affects the way you feel. Even if circumstances stink, you have that. That's what he's feeling. He's reminded of how great God's love for him has been, even though he's gone through this whole process, and now all of a sudden he's saying, who have I in heaven but you? And you know what? There's nobody else on earth that's as important to you. He has an intimacy and a joy that comes with being in love, with love with the Lord, but with some who will never forsake him. And so now he reminds himself of reality. Look, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who, uh, who are far away from you shall perish. Uh, you put, the, uh, put to an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, 
It's good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that, all, that I may tell of your works. When we experience the love of God in light of our wrong attitudes, our frustrations, and are brought back anew, we are able to experience what is promised here. And the words that he speaks here are not just the words of a songwriter trying to crank out another pop song, song to be sung in church. They're very real. I look at it this way. It's the difference between an authentic expression and a hallmark expression. Now, when I say that, I am very thankful to all of you who gave me cards last week. I'm not real happy that there was an event that caused you to do it, my birthday, but I appreciate that. But when I think about what I mean by the hallmark expression is I have difficulty whenever I need to buy a card for some, and some more than others. Because I pick up the card, and it looks like it'd be good on the front, and then I read, and they have this long, beautiful, you know, overflowing poem that's just sappy and whatever. And I'm thinking, I can't give this. They're going to know in a heartbeat that I didn't read it. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, it's just not me. And so I go with, in cards, something that some of you will rightly recognize that I don't go with in sermons is shorter is better. And, um, because I want it to be real, a real expression. And then if I can write something in, and I struggle with that sometimes too, and, and what do I need to say? But sometimes the words come because things are in right perspective. It's exactly what is happening to Asaph here. The songwriter didn't just crank out another song. The songwriter says, here's what my theology says, and I can write a song that's consistent with my theology. But you know what? I'm, I don't really care right now. And he goes through that process, never rejected by God, repents of his own ungodliness, never being forsaken, and is reminded again, not just of the words of God's love, but experiences it and then overflows with a love for God that encompasses him and then a delight to be able to share that same thing with others. Folks, this is what we need. We need to be authentic. And for some of you, I know that is going to be very hard because you're sitting here even with the question, you're telling yourself, oh, I am authentic, when the fact is you haven't told yourself the truth in years. And others of you don't know that you're allowed, and so I'm giving you blanket permission. Because only when we are real will we experience real joy. But when we are real, and then not just stay in our feelings, but compare the gap between what we feel and the truth of who God is, and we deal with that, God has promised over and again to meet us, to show us his love, fill us again, and we will feel the joy that Asaph feels. That's his promise to you and to me. What a glorious hope. Let me pray, and we'll stand and sing our praises to the God who's loved us this way. Father, as we <clears throat> come, <clears throat> I thank you for Asaph. More than that, I thank you for your truth that Asaph experienced and models for us not as an example for a checklist, but one who understands us and one whom we can understand. And I pray that wherever we are, Lord, we would learn to be honest about ourselves to you and even to ourselves, maybe even eventually to one another, so that we may experience the joy of your love as perfectly given to us in Jesus Christ. We pray in him.